0: Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Last week we began a series in the Gospel of Mark, in which we're going to be in this series many months. I have grown to love the Gospel of Mark uh, more than ever before. I love the descriptive nature of the way Mark writes. I love the context that he was writing in in Rome in a time that was very evil against the church, as Nero was killing Christians. I love the fact that John Mark was one of the men carried along by the Holy Spirit to write these words. And the words that we're gonna hear today come in the middle of chapter one, and it's Mark recording what he felt was most important that are the first words of Jesus in his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 14 and 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now after John, that's John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I taught my teacher to yo yo. She taught me to read. And whenever you're learning to read, and some of you are learning to read right now, your teachers explain to you words. They teach you how to spell words, how to sound out words, and how to define words. Sometimes your teachers will say, put this word or this list of words into a sentence. I remember doing that even for Mrs. Tedford. And I remember when I didn't know what a word meant that I was supposed to go look that word up in the dictionary. Because if I didn't know what it meant, I couldn't put it in a sentence. But sometimes I didn't wanna take time to look up the definition. So I would write this sentence. Ashley doesn't know what astonished means. (laughs) Or Tim doesn't know what abide means. And that's what my sentences would look like. And Mrs. Tedford and many teachers after her would call me up and say, that's not the kind of sentence we're looking for. I think we do the same thing with the word gospel and the same thing with the word kingdom. I don't really think many Christians really understand the depth of what these words mean. That's not a rebuke, it is a simple acknowledgement that because these words are so significant, so deep, mean so much as believers, We need to have a Holy Spirit-given definition that comes from the Word of God, from the mouth of our Savior, from those carried along to write this Holy Word. The word gospel and the word kingdom should always astonish us. Astonished is a word that Mark uses often, that's why I'm using it so often. And it is not primarily an emotion, it's a reality. When you experience something that astonishes you, you just are astonished. If you have to make yourself astonished, you're not astonished. So when I say astonished, I don't mean it's emotional. It can be. In fact, often it is because it overwhelms you. And the gospel should overwhelm us. And the kingdom and its connection to the gospel should overwhelm us. But if we don't understand the definitions, they will not overwhelm us. We will not be astonished. So this morning, I simply want to, in a survey, we're kind of laying the foundation for the whole gospel of Mark. I want to look at the word gospel and I want to look at the word kingdom. In an article in Christianity Today, and not long after that, on the Gospel Coalition's website, the question was posed to many theologians, many pastors, and just people who profess faith in general, what is the gospel? It's a really important question. In fact, 18 years ago, when I was interviewing to come to this church to be the pastor for Youth and Families, I met with Skip Ryan and Tim Tinsley. The only question I remember Skip asking as we had breakfast at the Pancake House was, Mark, what is the gospel? And I knew enough to know that he has an answer that he wants me to give. But because the answer to that question can be so simple and short, like a verse, or so deep and broad and profound, that made me a little nervous. Will my being called to this church depend upon how I answered that question? Frankly, it should be. It's that important. So let's talk about the gospel, then let's talk about the kingdom. I believe that right now, if I said, I want you to write your definition of the gospel, you would be able to write something. Most who are in Christ would say, it's the good news, and it is. But the word good news is true for all sorts of areas of life. In other words, if a soldier who's not a Christian at all runs as a herald to his general to bring good news, that's the gospel. That's what that word means. So for us to say it's good news is not enough. It is good news. In fact, it's the good news. It's the great news. It's astonishing news. But why? And I'm convinced that if you wrote down a definition and we could turn towards one another and I said, share your definition, you would be surprised how different they are. They would have elements that perhaps were the same, but they might leave certain things out that are really significant. That's because this word is dynamic. It's part of God's word, which is alive. And so when Jesus speaks of the gospel of God and the gospel and the kingdom of God, friends, we really need to know what he's saying. I want you to listen to how one theologian describes the gospel. I'm not going to give you a word-by-word pithy definition. I want you to, to seek the Lord's face, listen to his word and create that. But here's a couple of examples of how important this word is. There's no greater message to be heard than that which we call the gospel. How many of you believe that's true? Raise your hand. And online, raise your hand. If you're in Christ, you you can't argue that question, but you can say, yes, I believe that with actually not knowing the gospel with actually not being able to say this is what the gospel is. There's no greater message to be heard than that which we call the gospel. But as important as that is, it is often given to massive distortions or oversimplifications. That's been the problem of mankind from the beginning. We either add to the gospel or we water it down. The gospel is called the good news because it addresses the most serious problem that you and I have as human beings. That's true. But if I were to say, what is the most serious problem that human beings have, including you, including me, what would you write? How would you describe it? How you describe it in its depth begins to explain how powerful the gospel is. What is the greatest problem that we have as human beings, it's sin. And sin is deeper in us than we know or want to admit. The problem that you and I have as human beings is simply this, God is holy and he is just and I am not. And at the end of my life, And everybody can hear this, whether you're about to go into college, you're about to enter high school, or about to enter middle school, or about to enter into the last great season of life. You can hear this and need to hear this. At the end of my life, I'm going to stand before a just and holy God, and I will be judged. And I will be judged either on the basis of my own righteousness or lack of it, or on the righteousness of another. Now you can begin to see, friends, the gospel is really dynamic. It's really deep. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness. I wanna be clear, not just a pretty good life. He lived a life without sinning ever, in thought, word, or deed or a lack of deed, or a lack of word. Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, of perfect obedience to God. He has done for me what I could not possibly do for myself. But not only has he lived that life of perfect obedience, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God. R.C. Sproul wrote that. And what he's doing is he's saying, the simple gospel is that Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died the perfect death so that all who trust in him are covered by his righteousness and are covered by his sacrifice. The gospel doesn't have to be a long paragraph to explain it. But if we keep it short and just simply cute, we might miss the significance of what the one true holy God has done that we might live forever. Jesus Christ gives us his gospel and it's good news. It's the good news. It's the good news that the only begotten Son of God came to this earth to live the perfect life that I could never live. Take your best day. In fact, try to have a, a best day today. And the burden that you will soon discover is that you can't, none of us can. We've all fallen short the good news is that Jesus did live that perfect life that I could never live. And then he died the perfect death that I deserved to die. You deserved to die. You deserve to spend eternity separated from God. So did I, but the gospel is good news that he died that death that I might be forgiven of my sins and be presented in him as righteous before the Holy God and live forever starting now live forever in him for him and with him all for the glory of god and all by the grace of god what's your definition of the gospel if your teacher said put it into a sentence what would it say i want you to write that sentence i want you to find delight in asking god Help me define the gospel. What is the gospel? And whatever you put down, share it with friends. Share it with other believers. Share it with family members. And let that definition, as it's saturated and anchored in Scripture, begin to astonish you again. That I am overwhelmed that this holy God would save me, would rescue me. Let's move on to kingdom. Skip asked me, what is the gospel? And I asked him, what do you all mean by extending the transforming presence of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to Dallas and to the world? And he smiled at me and he said, That's a mouthful, isn't it? He goes, what do you think of it? Again, I may not have got the call depending on how I answered it. I said, I think it's the most beautiful mission statement I've ever seen in a church. And I bet the majority of your church has no idea what it means. And he smiled, our friendship started transforming presence of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Just be honest. How many of you would say, I kind of struggle to know what that means? Raise your hand. For those watching online, there's quite a few hands up, maybe a few liars. What does it mean? It matters. It matters because Jesus And the first word Mark records him saying says, behold, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus Christ is connecting these two things. This idea of gospel and this idea of kingdom. The gospel isn't just, I prayed to receive Jesus as my Lord and savior. I'm going to heaven now and then I do whatever I want. That is not the gospel. It's part of the gospel. Praying to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, resting in Him alone for your salvation is definitely part of the gospel. But there's an element of kingdom that is unbelievable, that is actually astonishing because of the nature of this kingdom. And what I wanna do for a few minutes is give you some of those elements, not all of them. And remember, this is just a survey. We're gonna be unpacking this for months. But what did Jesus mean by kingdom? What does the word of God mean by kingdom? We're gonna look at reign, R-E-I-G-N, radical, redemption, and real, just to give you something to hang these things on. And we're gonna go pretty quick. First of all, the word king or kingdom is used 2,800 times in scripture. Think about that. These references include, of course, references to human kings, as well as to the divine one. That's actually significant, because as images, human and divine kingship influences each other. Human kingship is to some extent an image of the divine. But, and this is important, Negatively, also, God's kingship stands in utter contrast with the corruption and tyranny of earthly kings. God's kingship stands in utter contrast with the corruption and tyranny of earthly kings. People often wonder, why did God allow that king to rule the people of Israel. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see time and time again where kings were put in place and power that were very evil. From biblical history to history today, you see all over the world where men and women put in places of authority as kings and queens, as dictators, as presidents, have done evil. God's kingship stands in contrast with the corruption and tyranny of earthly kings. God's kingship is radically different than an earthly kingship. When we hear the word kingdom, God's kingdom, we tend to think geographic. We tend to think about one particular country, a a nation with borders and that a specific king has the authority and reign over that particular area. That is not how we should think of God's kingdom. Sinclair Ferguson says, we tend to associate kingdom with a geographical area over which a monarchy reigns. But in scripture, the kingdom of God describes an activity. God reigns over his people and over his world that rule was exercised or is exercised wherever God is present. And because the King we're talking about, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing and omnipresent, everywhere present, that is God's reign. Kids, here's what that looks like. How many of you got woken up last night or before you went to bed, you began to hear thunder and you begin to see out your windows lightning In the book of Job, as it speaks about this incredible reign of God, God says to Job, does the lightning go out from you and report back to you, this is where I've been. There's not a part of God's creation, not one bolt of lightning, not one hair on your head that God is not completely in control of. God, kingdom means his reign and God's kingdom is held by his hands God's kingdom is under his control secondly God's kingdom means reign but I also want you to know that his kingdom is a radical kingdom radical means at its core what I want you to understand and what you're going to see through the gospel of Mark is that their expectation of this messianic king, their expectation of what Jesus was going to bring as the promised king, was way different than Jesus' idea and plan. They wanted a physical political leader that would push against the nation of Rome and others who were oppressing them. That was not God's plan. God's plan was to usher in a kingdom in which he reigns that is far more radical and far different than they could have ever imagined. That's why as Jesus speaks and begins to describe his kingdom and begins to say, I must go and be crucified, killed. I'll be raised from the dead. They couldn't believe it. Even those who walked closest to him. That was not what they had envisioned. It was not their plan. God's kingdom was a radical kingdom. And dear, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, it still is. When people are called to Christ and they rest and receive him alone for their salvation, they're called into a radical kingdom that is calling us in Christ to constantly surrender, to die to self, to do the things that we would never consider doing, like loving our enemies, and praying for those who persecute us, giving sacrificially and generously. God's kingdom is a radical kingdom because what Christ is saying is, you must only abide in me in a part of being a part of my kingdom. So what Christ is doing is he's tearing down all the other kingdoms that you and I are building up because his alone will last. God's kingdom involves his reign. It's a radical kingdom, and it's centered on redemption. It's centered on rescue. It is centered on God rescuing a people that he has called to himself. And this is what's astonishing. He isn't picking out people who are pretty good. He's not looking at Andy and saying, he's better than this guy, so he'll make it. He's taking a people called to himself rescuing them while they're still sinners. God's kingdom is all about redemption from beginning to end. And his kingdom is real. Jesus said this, look with me again at verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here's what Jesus meant. The time is fulfilled. In the Greek, there's two words for time and they really matter. One is chronos, and that means the passing of time. Like right now, it's 1155. Many of you have been here about an hour. We only have an hour to go. Just making sure you're with me, children. Not that much longer. Chronos is the passing of time. But the word kairos, means a particular moment in time that is so significant, it defines everything that comes after it. And that's the word that Mark is using here to describe what Jesus said. The time, the kairos is fulfilled. Fulfilled in the Greek means it's like a cup where you've poured too much and it just continues to overflow. Jesus is saying, I am here. I am the king, this is a significant mark that defines everything that comes after it, and it has. One way to understand this in English, because we do not have a word that corresponds to this distinction very well, is to think about the English words, historical and historic. Everything that happens is historical. You being in this worship service or watching online and participating in this worship service is historical. It's chronos, it's happened. But not everything is historic. Historic is when something happens to a person, to a family, to a church, to a nation, to the world that is marked. We're in the middle of a very historic time during this pandemic. There are historic things happening in our nation right now. If you are a Christian, there was an historic moment in your life. It may be an exact day that you remember or a season that you remember. But it was that historic moment in history when you surrendered your life to Christ. And the reason it was historic is that you were rescued. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God's kingdom is real. but there's a tension that exists that we feel so greatly. And I'm gonna end with this. The tension is between the kingdom having already come and us waiting for the consummation. And what that means for all who are in Jesus, who've trusted Christ, it means that our salvation is complete in Christ but sin that wages war against our soul will not be destroyed until he returns. Already we experience his presence. Already we experience his peace. Already we experience his power. But this side of heaven, we also feel the effects of a world that's building other kingdoms, of a world it's being torn apart of a world where natural disasters still take place and we pray for those people in a world where disease still destroys lives in a world where deep divisions destroy peoples and churches and marriages and families we the side of heaven experience what it means to to be a part of green pastures and still waters. And yet, we need a song like Donnie Ray sang that reminds us that there's a lot of burdens. Here's what's amazing about the kingdom and why it matters so much with the word gospel the kingdom of God is the historical program. You may not love that word, it just means his plan. The kingdom of God is the historical plan of God coming to overcome his enemies, to redeem his people and to bring his lordship to bear on all areas of created reality. John Frame says this, the the kingdom begins in Jesus himself and in the working of the spirit, bringing people to acknowledge him as king. Listen to this and then I'm going to land the plane. Since Jesus' ascension, the kingdom of God is the work of God through his people, bringing Jesus' kingship to bear on the whole world. It is bringing people to bow the knee to him in every tongue to confess his lordship. It is turning people into disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything Jesus has taught us. So the Great Commission is God's plan for cultural change. As individuals bow the knee to Christ, they discover that worshiping Jesus must lead to action, bringing Jesus' teaching to bear on everything. God's intention is that Believers will not keep the kingdom to themselves, but will bring it to bear on all spheres of human life. As believers take their faith into their workplaces and culture, they take the kingdom with them. And that is why understanding that word matters. It is not a kingdom that is meant to say, let's just come and huddle and wait It is a kingdom mandate that says, because you have been rescued and you have been redeemed, you are to go as salt and light into all parts of the world where you work, where you play, where you vote, where you engage in all sorts of cultural issues. The church must enter in because the kingdom of God matters. And people who are outside the kingdom are not going to build godly kingdoms. And some who are building ungodly kingdoms are just like you were, and just like you would be if there had not been an historic moment in your life. As the church in this historic moment, we need to go forth as his people as salt and light, bringing the hope of the gospel and the kingdom of God, his reign, his radical kingdom, his redemption, his profound sense of love and mercy, because it's real. the last r word is repent in 18 years probably a dozen times i've went down oaklawn heading north stopped at the light at wycliffe and watched people turn right now if that doesn't shock you it should because that's a one way street and every time the same thing happens sometimes quicker than other times. The brake lights come on. And then the white reverse lights because people realized I am driving the wrong direction on a one way street. Repent means to turn. You're going the wrong direction. And what you're going to discover in the gospel of Mark is that Jesus is gonna say over and over again, repent and believe. What does he say to repent and believe? Believe in the gospel. Today, if you're watching or if you're present here, this might be an historic moment. This might be the day in your life when you come to saving faith and say, I wanna be connected to Jesus. I want to know I'm in his grip for his glory and good. I want to be forgiven and make sure I'm part of his kingdom. If that's you, then pray and ask the Lord to save you. If you've already prayed that prayer and you know of that historic moment in your life, whether it was a day or a season, let me urge you to see this that as followers of Christ, already justified in sanctification, There are many more historic moments. There are many more historic moments when we realize I am going the wrong direction. And many who profess Christ are too. We need to hit the brakes, put it in reverse, and turn back towards who Christ says he really is. I'm not talking about losing salvation. I'm talking about being made more and more like Jesus. And one of the things that you're gonna see in this gospel over and over again is the theme of blindness and deafness and lack of belief. It should be our expectation as followers of Christ that there will be many historic moments where the Lord gives us a deeper understanding of the gospel and a deeper understanding of his kingdom. And when we hear it with those eyes that have been renewed, we become astonished. You cannot make yourself astonished. I can't make you astonished. But God can. And God does. And when he does, mark it as historic. Lord Jesus Christ, Please have mercy on us. Please restore our sight. For those this day who do not know you, would you make this happen for your glory's sake, that even now they would turn and pray to you for salvation and rest and receive you alone. And Lord, for those like myself who have a moment that is historic would you create in us the desire and the expectation for more moments like that, where we see so much more clearly the depth of the meaning of the word gospel and of the word kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.